Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I am your host, Leo Dion. Before we begin the interview with Antoine, I wanted to cover a few things. We just finished the Apple event revealing the new Apple Silicon Max. And I wanted to talk about that. We recorded the episode the morning of today of the Apple event. So obviously Antoine and I didn't really cover these new Macs, but I figured I would just give you a quick, quick thoughts on the event today. So this was our last event from Apple, last hardware event. It's been pretty quick this year. We've had three events in two months, like Tim said, and we got the reveal of the M1 chip, which will be used in the MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, and Mac Mini, which can be ordered today. I don't know when they're going to be out exactly. I haven't been able to check that out. I don't know which I'm really interested in. I'm kind of not really up for buying another piece of Apple hardware. I already bought a new iPhone and a new Apple Watch, as well as the HomePod Mini that should be coming in a few days. So I'm not super enthusiastic about buying something new. I do have a MacBook Pro that's almost half decade old now, so it could definitely use an upgrade. Uh, but I did just put a two terabyte hard drive in, so that's that's helped quite a bit. But it, it's getting slow for sure. The other option is looking at getting a MacBook Air if I wanted something to replace what was my iPad Pro, but that doesn't sound really interesting to me uh, for a write-only machine. And then the other option is the Mac Mini. And I think if I was really desperate to get an app in the App Store that worked on Apple Silicon, I'd probably go that route because I think that would be the most uh, reliable as to kind of use it as a remote uh, CI machine, essentially, to make sure I can get my builds working on Apple Silicon, especially with an app like Speculate, which I'm hoping to get in the App Store very soon. So that was the Apple event. I am really kind of a wait and see approach to see what the reviews say and uh, what comes out. But um, it doesn't look like new industrial design or anything like that. A lot of comments about uh, devices having fans or don't have fans and things like that. You know, all that's fantastic, I guess. But um, I'm kind of wait and see and what is it actually going to be like when uh, developers get these in their hands or even video editors as well. So that was pretty much the Apple event in summary, not a lot. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, my videos are out for Back to Mac. Thank you so much, Gavin, for putting this conference together. You can check it out at the YouTube channel, which I'll have a link to, as well as my two videos on modern Mac OS development with C++, as well as my talk on Swift Argument Parser. Those will be in the links. Uh, Lucas, who was a guest this summer and talked about Mac OS development, he had a video as well, and a few other people that you really should check out. It's an awesome conference if you're interested in Mac development anyways. And that's back to Mac. And then lastly, get your ticket to NS Spain. Remember, you can get 10% off if you use our promo code Empower Apps. I'm speaking at it. I will be speaking on Swift Package Management. Antoine, our guest for today, is also speaking as well. And folks that we've had on the show, like Paul Hudson, Donnie Walls, they all will be speaking at this 36-hour conference, which is going to be awesome. So that's fantastic. Definitely want to check that out. Go to NSPain.com, use the promo code EmpowerApps, get 10% off, and you will see me talk about Swift Package Manager, the dependency management of the future. Thank you so much. I think that's it. Here is the first part of our interview with Antoine about maintaining and migrating old code and old projects over. The second part should be out in a few days later, probably five days. So thank you so much, and I'll let the rest of the episode take it away. 
Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm excited to have one of my favorite bloggers in the Swift space, Antoine Vanderlee. Hey, Antoine, how's it going? Hey, hey, yeah, doing great. Thanks for uh, inviting me over. I'm really looking forward to have a nice conversation today. So for those who don't know who you are, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, I think I'm best known from my uh, personal blog called Swiftly, at which I write for two years every week. And I try to publish that article every new week. Besides that, I'm a developer for almost four years at WeTransfer, where I uh, developed the Collect by WeTransfer application. Yeah, and I try to be a regular speaker at conferences. So uh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, we'll talk about at the end of our uh, recording today, we'll talk about our talks at NS Spain. I'm really excited about that this year. But you've been working on your big app you've been working on for developers has been RocketSim, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's like a typical example of a, a hobby project that turns out to be uh, way more serious than it started. I, th- I think I started it like a year ago in August, where I found myself testing universal links in the simulator for the collect by transfer application. And it, co- it was quite like a repetitive task. You know, I had to copy a link into Safari on the simulator, uh, open it. Then I started evolving it into an HTML page where I could just press a link and it would open in the simulator. But you know, it, it, it was repetitive and it didn't really, well, smoothed my, my whole process in testing the uh, application. So. Yeah, I decided to uh, start developing Rocket Sim, but it's uh, it's a different application you know today, I think. So, what exactly does Rocket Sim do? Is it like a power tool for simulators, essentially? Yeah, so I think many of the iOS developers are familiar with the uh, SimCTL tools, which yeah. we uh, have available in the in, in the terminal command. Yeah, I use that for like screenshots and videos. Yeah, you could do all sorts of stuff with like clearing your data, resetting it, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I basically did with RocketSim is uh, at first I built like a, a UI around that tool to make it a bit more accessible. And over time, I started developing uh, RocketSim to be a more enhanced version of it. So right now, RocketSim enables you to record the simulator into MP4 or GIF. So what basically RocketSim is doing for you is converting it into a quality video file as well as a GIF file, which you can share on platforms like GIF or on GitHub. You can't create a GIF with some CTL. So you're, you're doing all that encoding yourself? Yeah, exactly. So right now, wow. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm taking the, the result from SimCTL and I'm converting it in multiple ways. I also wanted to support dragging it into App Store Connect so you can use it for App Store Previews. So yeah, you know, it's a lot easier to create App Store Previews if you want through the simulator. And it's also resulting in a floating uh, thumbnail on the bottom right of your screen. So you can directly drag the uh, recording result in any app you want. And and that's different compared to using the terminal where you first need to open the terminal, remember the command, execute the command, save it to a location with the right syntax, and then you can start dragging it anywhere. So it's basically making the whole workflow a lot easier. That's awesome. And is this available on the App Store or is it just free open source? Um, it's available for free in the App Store, in the Mac App Store. And for free, you will get like a recording version with a small watermark on it to just help me promote RocketSim a bit. Um, and you can decide to become a RocketSim Pro user and then you get like uh, recordings without any watermarks on it. Awesome. So are you ready for 
the switch over to Big Sur with Rocket Sim? Yeah, yeah. What, what I did, what I like to do in general is to just uh, have a separated partition in which I can test out Big Sur. So I did the same because I had quite a few early adopters. I think that's the downside of a developer tool because right. you have developers and they want to test out Big Sur as soon as it's available. So I had to actually start testing it quite early. And uh, well, yeah, you know, I was, I think I was kind of lucky because it worked almost uh, completely. So yeah, uh, I guess I'm ready. That's awesome. So today we have quite a challenging topic. I'm sorry. This is the topic that we picked. It's not fun and exotic, but I think as employees and as software developers, we run into this quite a bit and that's maintaining and migrating older applications. We all, we've all done it before. It's, it's the dirty job of iOS development. What kind of experiences have you had dealing with like old code or maintaining old code? Uh, what kind of challenges do you run into frequently? Yeah, so th- there's there's a lot I can I can say about this, and I think it totally differs per project. Before I worked at WeTransfer, I was working at a digital agency, and it often happened that I had to take over a project from a different company, where you would end up in in a real big, well, kind of code mess you didn't write yourself, which yep. feels a lot worse than if you are in a code mess you did write yourself. <laughs> but you know, nowadays at WeTransfer, I'm uh, you know I was one of the first developers, so I can dream like the complete code in that application. And I think if you're, if you're doing a great job for yourself, it's, it's not, not a difficult topic to discuss because if you're iteratively making sure your code is up to date, then, then there's nothing really to migrate, you know? So what we try to do at WeTransfer and um, we do the same as we speak with SwiftUI is we really try to stay on top of, of the new things and, and adopt as we go in phases, step by step, which, you know, that makes it at least a much smaller step over time. And um, I think that way it doesn't really hurt for us. Yeah, I think definitely doing an iterative approach. And I'm a big believer in continuous integration and things like that. And just making sure your code is constantly like passes whatever linting or whatever code coverage you expect and following that rule. But yeah, I think I've run into more situations where I am brought on to deal with essentially like a mess of code uh, that somebody had already worked on and kind of being brought onto those projects. And that that to me is like the bigger challenge is how how do you take something that's already a mess and like introduce, first of all, A, clean it up, but also B, introduce an iterative process into it so that way problems don't happen in the future. Yeah, I think if I look back, I have been lucky over time where I could convince my product managers to really start rewriting the complete project um, at the time when Swift was just uh, just arrived. But you know, there are indeed cases where where that's not an option, and you really need to figure out like a, a solid structure and a solid way where where tomorrow is a better day for your project than 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 today. What do you think helped convince your product manager? Yeah, so you know. I always try to really make it visible for them, especially if the product manager isn't technical, you really need to know how to convince him in terms of like, what does it mean if we wouldn't do the migration in terms of time, for example? Mm-hmm. Because if if it means that, that developing a new feature takes like 
for example, a week longer just because the project structure isn't fitting the way we like to work. Um, and it takes, for example, three months to uh, develop the, the the rewrite because, you know, you already have the code, right? You only need to rewrite it to Swift, for example. You, you right. know the business rules already. So it, it's kind of like a faster approach than starting from scratch. Three months is obviously longer than that one week for developing that new feature. But if you take it over like two years or three right. years, then obviously it's 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 a better approach. I think this this is a case per case, obviously. But in this case, it might work if you, for example, still have a project in Objective-C. But say that you have a project with uh, Swift and that project is a mess just because, you know, maybe, maybe uh, somebody else wrote a lot of things in... Uh, well, uh, let me let me share an example. What I did. <laughs> this is a, a sad story for my old colleagues because I left them with a with a project which is now Codemass, probably. But <laughs> you, you know, you have those those times where you really want to dive into like a new 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 tool or topic. And for me, that was at the time RX Swift, okay, you know, reactive reactive programming. I was really into it, and I I wrote everything with RX Swift, even though it wasn't the best choice. And right now I left over like a few of those engineers with a project, which is completely wired into RX Swift observables and those kind of things. And it's really hard for them to maintain that project because, you know, if you don't have that learning curve of RX Swift, it's just, yeah, time consuming and it's way harder mm-hmm. than doing a project without it. And what they do, they take, take it step by step and they rewrite screen per screen, business logic per business logic into like code that's easier to understand and simpler for them to maintain. And obviously that doesn't result in a better application within a few days, but yeah, it's, it's an iterative process, which makes it a better project over time. Yeah. I'm hearing a couple of things. One thing is when you convince your product manager, it seems like, like at the end of the day, it's money, right? That's going to drive the decision. And if that means they can save more money long time by you rewriting and re-architecting the code, I think that's much more tangible to them. And of course, like you said, it depends case by case because in a lot of cases, there is no long term. Everything is short term. Those are not fun projects to work on, but they're for real. Uh, They're out there. And so like they don't even care about re-architecting because they just want the short term gain. um, And then, you know, whatever, they'll worry about it at some other point. Yeah, I think that's that's also like an important difference uh, between an agency working for clients that really want to have a result within eight weeks, no matter how you do it. You know, um, right. Those, right. those are often also the examples where you don't write any unit tests because there's no time. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, whereas if you're working at a product company, it's much more important to have that solid foundation on which we can build on for like years. You know, uh, we, we can't rewrite the project every, every other year, so... Yeah, those are really different stories. The other thing you you talk about is using RX Swift and the idea of bringing in third party libraries always is kind of a flag, a warning flag. Um, it better be like really accepted or something that's pretty major if you're going to bring that in and make that your whole design philosophy. Because I know a lot of fans of RX Swift that that isn't it isn't that I wouldn't say it's that foreign to a lot of people especially now that people are getting more exposure to reactive programming, but still at least, I don't know, we're talking maybe like five years ago that you did this. Like, yeah, I could see how that's a totally, totally foreign way to do things outside of the standard UI kit storyboard way. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's not per se a problem, you know, if everybody in the project knows what you're doing and knows about this third party dependency, then it's a perfect way to develop the application. And at the time I was the only one developing the application. So, you know, there is no problem at all. Where were you in the hierarchy at the company? Um, and this, this was at the agency time where I, I grew from like being a junior, um, over four years to watch a senior. And okay. I think, I think this, this was at a point where I was the senior because I made a decision to do, uh, RX5 and I was capable of making that decision. Yeah, and there probably were like whatever five years ago. That was probably not a lot of Swift developers because whatever Swift is only six years old, anyways. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, no, yeah. That. that's true. But you know, this dates back even longer, where we also adopted Reactive Cocoa with the Objective C time. You know, so. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. In general, just any decision to adopt a third, a third party dependency which obviously also happens way more often at an agency because the time is right. way smaller, you know? So right. if you can use a third-party dependency, which gives you like a boost in development, yeah, that's a really easy choice. Hey folks, I wanted to talk to you again about app figures. You probably already know them, but their analytics and their app store optimization. App figures really is about giving app makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. Well, now app figures can help you track competitors from how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and which SDKs they use. Their competitor intelligence really gives you great context. Say a competitor adds like a new feature or was mentioned in the news recently. With app figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads right away. Got a great idea for an app or a game? Well, with app figures, you can figure out how big that market is and how much money you could be making with it. And that's just scratching the surface. Whether you're growing your app or building a new one, AppFigures has the tools you need that will reduce the risk, but also get you more downloads. You don't need a large budget or a data science degree to do this kind of thing. AppFigures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, AppFigures also provides a lot of great guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. So go ahead, head to the link in the show notes and try app figures for free. If you like it, use our special code empower 3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you app figures for sponsoring our show. So let's say you get a, a ginormous file from one of your developers, like a really big file, maybe it has, maybe this, it's a huge view controller, let's say. Tons of lies, like we're talking thousands. How, what's your philosophy fee on like cleaning up that code or how do you triage that in such a way that like, okay, first thing we need to do is break this up in this way. Or first thing we need to do is t- deal with this. What are some like red flags that you would take care of right away? So the way I like to do refactoring is by being really convinced that I'm doing the right thing. And the only way I see that makes it possible is by writing unit tests. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. Yeah, you know, it's 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 the only way you're for sure that the input results in the same output. And I guess if anybody writes such a big class, uh, they don't care about unit testing as well. So I, I probably have to start writing those first. And once I have those, I would I would take it step by step and, and rewrite like well maybe maybe first look at like data sources, delegates, like those distinct uh, responsibilities and take them out 
creates uh, single responsibilities of them. Right. And then it leaves you up with, with, with other kind of sectors in that class, you know, like pieces that should be in a field model. Maybe there's some networking, which I can extract into a networking layer. Maybe that view itself is way too big and I need to create two new views first, which already removes a bit of code. And as you go, it will be more and more obvious what you want to create there. Although while I'm speaking right here, thinking out loud, I think it's maybe even better to do this beforehand where you really create that structure so you know what you're going to do, you know, like where where are you going to place all the pieces that you have in place? Yeah, it, like I like the idea about unit testing because I think like that's not just does unit testing ensure that your code does what you expect it to do, but it also it's created at least for me like a healthy habit of good architecture. That's one of the things and just being able to like build the unit tests and then build the scaffolding so that way like kind of like you're building almost like a bridge or a tower to where like you have pieces in there i don't even know what it's called i'm not a construction person but like you have the pieces in there that holds the thing up but then you are able to like remove those pieces that hold it up temporarily which is basically your old code once you've set up your new code uh that's better architectured and refactored correctly does that analogy make any sense i think so yeah, yeah, I, I think it does. Although it might not always be the way how to do this, you know, because it's not always possible to keep the old code in place while rewrite while writing the new code. You know, sometimes you have to throw away the old code first before you can start writing and adapting the new code. But I, I guess, yeah, uh, you, you can make the building collapse during <laughs> the, the refactor. You know, what, what do you mean by you have to remove the old code? Well, you know. Um, you have two ways of refactoring. One way would be to kind of like in an A-B testing way where you would have the two versions side by side working. That would mean that that the old approach should completely stay working. Otherwise, you can't test the new flow. Mm -hmm. And the other approach would be to make the project kind of break. So you're, you're kind of like let the building collapse and yeah, you yeah, start yeah. rebuilding it from scratch kind of um and so that you kind of let it. You let the compiler fail or the app crash because that way it it's a way to remind you to to you know understand when that thing is fully working. I guess. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes the new approach needs to make use of code that already exists, but that existing code needs to be adopted for the new way of working. But to be able to do that, you're breaking the old kind of logic that was already in place. So you mm -hmm. have to remove that kind of. Um, yeah, it's just an easier approach if you don't have to think about the old implementation. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What other red flags do you think you'll see in code that you'd like? Yeah, that needs to be taken care of right away. Well, what we like to do at WeTransfer is, um, well, it's actually an open source framework we have where um, you can find our code guidelines, you know, like the, the syntax uh, using tabs or spaces, uh, you, you know, those uh, common discussions you have in the community. But uh, linting rules, yeah. basically, right? Exactly, linting rules. We have uh, we have Swift lint set up, and we also have a few custom danger rules, danger systems, uh, which will all run during an um, and an pull request CI integration. We're using Bitrise for that, which uh, really helps us to write consistent code. And it could easily be that that class we get somehow um, doesn't apply to those rules. So I think that's a red flag for us as well because we want to have consistent code that at least makes it easier to understand. 
that's that's one part. There is another part that you can't really force through linting, and that's like structuring code. Deciding to go for a few model, certain naming conventions, um, y- using a return keyword or not. You know, like all those kind of decisions. You want to make sure that that class is adopting that as well, so it's kind of like family of the code you already have in place. Um, okay, so let's let me ask: tabs or spaces? <laughs> tabs. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I don't know if we can keep keep doing this for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to become a controversial. Uh, I do, I guess, yeah, I do two spaces. Just, just FYI, but. Yeah, I don't I don't care. Like I guess for my own part projects, I'll do two spaces. But like if I'm on a team, I just want a rule, right? Like I think that's mm-hmm. the important thing. Just have a rule. If it's yeah. tabs, be consistent. Like I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, totally agree. And then I guess like one one thing that I've I haven't found a good swift lint rule or swift format rule for is one struct or one extension or one type in each file. I, I try to follow that rule. So like don't have multiple classes in one file. I, I'll do that when I like first start off. Right. But then eventually yeah, yeah. like I split it up into like files, uh, each file for each type and each extension and enumeration, whatever, you know what I mean? I'm trying to think what other rules I find a lot of, I don't know. Well, anything else you can think of? Do you have like a max max line limit? Or max oh, character yeah, limit? Well, yeah, we have the max uh, file length limit. Yeah, okay. But, but, you know, that's always a big struggle because sometimes it's just, you know, those, those few controls that adopt so many extensions, it's really hard to just move them over to a different file because you also want to contain them together, kind of. Mm, uh, okay. Yeah, because I've when I've done view controllers like that, I usually just split them up into extensions if they're yeah. way too long. And then I try to group it based on what protocol it's trying to implement and then that way like okay this one is the view controller data source implementation this is a view controller uh whatever table view delegate you know things like that yeah the, the down, downside i find there is that it's always you know you need to find it in a different file even though those files may live together in the same folder it's an extra step to make it discoverable which i often kind of dislike yeah yep we, and i've heard yeah, that's we, a big pet peeve with extensions in general yeah, yeah, and we we do and do uh, up doing this. so, but I rather have like a hundred lines extra in that class and make it easy to find instead of having the code separated across all those files. In the end, it's all about findability, readability in your project, and if it means that it's a six hundred fi- lines file but it's still overviewable, you know, then I reached my goal. So uh, yeah, we we sometimes decide to use that uh, wild mark to uh, disable the rule for a certain right. Right, right. Yeah. Was there any other red flags you want to talk about or should I just go to the next topic? What I find interesting about your rule that you suggested is uh, you know, the, the, and that's that's often something I run into is in the beginning you you start writing your field model in the same file. So you have like a field controller and a structure for your field model in the same file. As long as that field model is really small, you don't really feel the need to create a new file because that new file will only contain like 10 lines of code or something. And right, it feels, right. It feels kind of odd to create a whole file for that small class, you know. But the thing is, over time, it could easily grow grow into like a bigger class with more responsibilities. So if, if I look at the code we have in place that we transfer, we, we often never define 
two instances in the same file. But, you know, it's always an interesting, uh, interesting decision. I feel that that's a habit I got from when I was a C sharp developer. And then I just carried that through into JavaScript and Swift and, and it makes a lot of sense. And like, I've gotten to a point, I have like a, somewhere in my terminal history, I have a series of like batch and uh, bash commands that basically splits the file for me based on every little uh, curly bracket, because I just, I do it so often and it's just, it's easier to find stuff. If anything, like I almost wish going back to your comment regarding extensions, like I feel like maybe in Xcode 13, it'd be nice if like the find finding features worked better. I know it keeps getting improved, but that would, that would make it a lot easier to deal with like multiple files for a single class or type. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting one. You know, we often run into a discussion as well in our team. We, uh, we develop the, we transfer app collect by, we transfer app with three iOS engineers and, that's, that makes it easy to discuss things. You know, it's not really a given that a certain way of direction is the way forward. And uh, one of my colleagues often uh, likes to use functions in functions, which is always a discussion. That's so, scary. That's yeah. Scary. What, what is your opinion on that? That's really scary. That's, that's, uh, uh, that should not be done, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, that's kind of my feeling. Cause yeah, it, 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 it has a, it has a sloppy JavaScript feel to it when you, yeah. when you have a function in a function. Yeah. I, I can't really get used to it too, but you know, in some places he, he meant to convince me because it kind of works and it's kind of readable, but still it feels so, you know, it's almost like a structure into a structure. It's also odd to me, you know, it, it just feels like it's, it's like tangled into each other or, you know, it doesn't feel right. But it, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard one. Well, okay, here, I'm going to try, try to, try to, try to be coherent and explain why I don't like it. And I could be totally wrong, but I'm going to try it anyways. A function inside a function. And the reason why it reminds me of like old JavaScript is because it kind of, it's masking a variable as a function, even though it's really a variable that's essentially private. And I understand he's like trying to like, control access that way to that function. But to me, like, why not just make it a file private function in the type rather than making it inside the function itself like that? Well, and in unit testing too, like just the unit testing of that individual function is going to be a mess, which goes back to my whole point about how like unit testing, one of the best things about it has been how it's made architecture so much better uh, in the last 10 or 15 years that's been popular. Yeah, totally. You know, and, it's it's also not really improving the structure of the method itself. Like it's pretty hard to to get an overview of what is now exactly in the method, calling right. all those inner methods. You know, yeah. readability doesn't really improve. Yeah, it's just, it it reminds me of all the worst parts about JavaScript when I did a lot more, like even whatever PS six, whatever it is right now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Antoine. Let's go ahead and we'll continue the rest of our interview in the next episode. Folks can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion, and my company is Bright Digit. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, please let me know. Reach out to me on Twitter. And then I would love for you to just take a few moments, uh, retweet whatever you liked about this episode. Just send me a reply, send me something on Twitter, just letting me know what you've liked about this particular episode. And if you could post any reviews on Apple podcast, 
Spotify or Google Podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. We'll continue the rest of our interview with Antoine in the next episode in a few days. So be sure to subscribe and we'll talk to you then. Thank you.